0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and I hope everybody had a terrific Easter and Passover weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today, as they do every week, to look at what shapes defense and aerospace markets worldwide are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Ablafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, here in Washington, DC. Everybody, hope you guys had a terrific holiday weekend. Uh, we slipped the show for a day because uh, because of that. Uh, and uh, thanks very much for joining me today.
1: Great to be here, Vago. thanks. Yeah,
0: thank you very much indeed, Vargo, as always. Yeah, great to be on, Fargo. Thanks. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra-intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Aerospace Conference and Trade Show last week was sponsored by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. Uh, guys, uh, again, terrific uh, having you on the program. Ron, uh, strong U.S. employment numbers, but the rate of new hires uh, slowed down uh, a little bit. Uh, in about a week's time, the sentiment has swung from uh, soft landing or that actually we might not be too bad economically to, oh my God, we're headed for a hard landing, depending on uh, who you read. I have to just say that. You know, calamity projections have not yet fully borne fruit. Uh, but uh, right there are a lot of folks who look at the Fed's uh, interest rate policy and say, "Look, I mean, it's pretty primitive. They're going to keep raising rates until employment goes down." Right? Walk us through what the sentiment on the street is more broadly and how the group comp- uh, group performed against those sentiments.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in short, it's a, it's just been a very volatile time. Like as you pointed out, you know, a week go wasn't so bad. Last week it's worse. Who knows what's going to happen this week? right? I mean, it's—I don't think anybody really knows to be candid, right? So it's you have this—you know—fluctuation between this guy is falling, this guy is not falling. It's okay. It's not okay. And I mean, I think that drives a lot of investors kind of crazy. So we saw last week more cyclical industrials sell off pretty hard. When you when you look across our group, you know, the broad market was off and was a shortened trading week. First of all, uh, the S and P as a measure of the broad market was off half a percent. Uh, Boeing was essentially flat. Um, in our world, the stocks that were up were Lockheed Martin was up almost 4%, Northrop almost 2%. Uh, so, you know, broad defense pure play outperformed as a, you know, the sense of, you know, a, maybe a flight to safety. Uh, when you look at more cyclical names, it, it kind of got worse from there. Uh, General Dynamics was down a smidge, General Electric was down 2%. Textron was down four percent. Embraer was down five percent. Bombardier was down seven percent. So, sort of when you went down the chain of things that were perceived as more cyclical, uh, Bombardier, all business jets, you know, potentially more cyclical. Um, you know, from a stock performance perspective, things just got worse. It, the ten-year yield uh, on the week uh, ended at about uh, three point four percent. And just to remind everybody, not that long ago, it was at four uh, percent, and you know, three three point four percent lower end of this range is the market saying hey we think the fed's actually going to start cutting at some point here um, the vix index ended the week at about 20 it's been trading in this range between 20 and 30 that's the lower end of the range and just to remind everybody the vix is a sort of a broad measure holistically of you know kind of risk and fear in the market so we're actually at the lower end of that that's not so bad uh, and then WTI and Brent crude were both up about five bucks on the week on the news that the Saudis were going to cut production. Uh, OPEC was going to cut production that bumped up oil prices. WTI ended the week at about 80 right. and Brent crude ended the week about
0: 85. I, I uh, love the way you characterized it, right? It's like, oh my God, the sky's falling. Oh no, sky's not falling. Sky's not falling. You know, so that that's uh, right. I mean, from a volatility standpoint, since markets are people and- Occasionally, there can be a panic that scares the herd. It's, uh, you know, that's that's why we're sort of in uh, dicey, uh, dicey times. Um, Sash, uh, it's uh, Easter Monday uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, markets obviously not open, but give us a sense uh, over the past week uh, and how the group in Europe uh, performed against broader uh, market sentiments. Yeah, okay. Uh, I,
2: there was a bit of less of a... Spread um, in European markets uh, last week. I think the problem there was in the uh, in the US, um, and you know it, it's important to remember that actually last week was a sort of four and a half day week because a number of the markets, although by no means all of them, were uh, were closed on Friday. And actually, some of the ones that were technically on Friday really didn't seem to move very much. Um, you know, Paris being one of the more interesting ones. Um, but you know, looking at the um, I, the surprise to me was. Civil, the civil aerospace stocks were generally up, um, up a cent cent and a half. Airbus was up about two and a bit um, last week. Um, uh, Saffran was was flat. So that's one of the other sort of big bellwethers there. MTU um, also fairly flat, flat and Rolls Royce down. The big action actually was in the defense stocks, um, and they were there was a much wider spread there. So. You know, the two best performers were Kinetic and Leonardo, both up well over 4% on the week. Um, but BA Systems, Kemring, both up 3% of the week. You know, that was good performance. But then the standout underperformer was Rheinmetall. There's a couple of reasons for this. I mean, tall poppy syndrome is a big driver of, I think, of Rheinmetall at the moment. You know, the shares have been such a remarkable Uh, performer this year alone. You know, you you should remember, started the year at uh, 200 euros, and they um, peaked at 275 euros about 10 days ago. So there have been an awful lot of people, you know, we've had a lot of clients phoning us up saying, you know, no matter what you think about the European defence story, surely we should be taking some profits uh, in Rheinmetall. Um, And lo and behold, last week, people started doing that, and the shares were off about 5%. So that really was the standout. But I would say that European markets in general are much more sanguine about the risks of a um, uh, economic slowdowns in various Europe uh, European uh, nations. Now there isn't yet the expectation that interest rates again start to be um, uh, start start to fall again. But I think the there's a feeling that we're towards the the, the top of the interest rate tightening cycle, um, and so you know as we went into the, the Easter weekend. I think you know Europeans are much more sanguine about this. The problem is there isn't isn't a huge amount of growth either. So no recession, that's great, but uh, there isn't runaway growth. You really have to be. You really have to look quite hard for the individual stocks, the individual sectors and subsectors that again produce the the equity performance uh, in 2023.
0: Richard, we've been talking about the economic decoupling on this show uh, for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, the chairman of uh, the uh, China uh, Committee, uh, Mike Gallagher, a Republican from uh, Wisconsin, uh, has said that You know, what's needed with Beijing isn't a total decoupling, but a selective decoupling that includes uh, really the most sensitive technologies. Uh, There can still be considerable trade between uh, the two countries. This comes as President Biden, uh, I think, is looking at an order uh, to restrict investment in Chinese technology uh, companies. From your standpoint, does this change sort of the outlook, the decoupling outlook? And we're going to get to Emmanuel Macron's uh, statements uh, in uh, a minute. Uh, as well as you know, how China is ratcheting up tensions in the wake of Tsai and Wen's uh, visit through the United States, I should say to the United States, but through the United States to Latin America. Um, walk us through where and how you're, you're gauging this because we have another, you know, we have a secondary, uh, uh, a second Airbus production line in Tianjin. We're going to talk about that uh, in a second as well, but kind of walk us through where you are sentiment-wise uh, on all this.
3: Yeah, you know, first of all, I think uh, Chairman Gallagher's comments were, uh, were helpful, <laughs> pure and simple. I-, I think there's an awful lot of uh, folks out there who were, yeah, I-, I don't want to say it's part of war fever, but it- there seems to be this kind of, okay, they've gone from strategic competitor to strategic threat, we all know that, uh, to something we need to cut off ties with and prepare for war in the next 18 months, which is complete nonsense. Look, you know, there are a number of range of outcomes here. Let's not encourage something much worse, like total decoupling followed by armed conflict. And, you know, I think this was exactly right. Selective decoupling, you know, and and the problem, of course, is that from our standpoint in the aerospace industry, we're kind of right on the on the cusp of you know what should be decoupled. It's maybe, maybe not, depending upon circumstances. You know, a, a former CEO once told me it's still one of my favorite quotes in the industry that we're kind of the designated hostage in any trade standoff in uh, in commercial aero, and that's certainly more true than ever. Uh, I continue to believe that there's scope for trade in commercial era, as long as we're careful about technology transfer. And uh, of course, as long as there's plenty of regulation and oversight, CFIUS and whatever else, that's absolutely essential. And that's, that's where Chairman Gallagher's, I think, comments were were extremely useful. Um, the problem, of course, in all of this is that there's this sort of emerging, I don't want to say death of free trade, but uh, <laughs> the world is is has gotten completely non-flat, you know, that, that, that Friedman-esque Fukuyama's dream of a flat world and uh, the end of history and open markets, that's that's quite dead. And even among allies, there's a great deal of competition, both in terms of technology, in terms of green initiatives, and perhaps uh, now with China. So the real problem with commercial aero, I think is is not radical and total decoupling, I, I unless the, the Chinese want that to happen for some reason. Um, The problem, of course, is other people taking advantage. And that's where Macron's visit comes in. You know, there was this wonderful treaty. There still is this wonderful treaty, sort of an adjunct of the WTO treaty, the GATT treaty, originally um, the Agreement on Trade and Civil Aircraft that stops people from taking advantage of these sorts of moments. (laughs) And for years, both the U.S. and and Western Europe or Europe, I should say, abided by the terms of this. But everything is kind of becoming a free for all. You know, and the Europeans are blaming the US for you know the IRA and the CHIPS Act and whatever else, other green technology funding initiatives, the US is blaming them back, understandably, for various technology developing init- development initiatives. And now, obviously, well, the Europeans perhaps see an advantage that if there is this geopolitically-based decoupling between the US and China on commercial arrow maybe that's an advantage for them to gain market share. That's really unfortunate. I I don't think Macron's visit was terribly helpful. Thankfully, he wasn't rewarded with very much except confirmation of something that was already pre-existing. The idea of a second production line, not sure it means very much because production lines aren't really the limiting factor here in commercial jet output. In the long run, it might be, um, and that's gonna be an issue. But in the short run, I don't think it matters very much. Either way, it all speaks to two allies not being on the same page in a place they should very definitely be
0: on the same page. Um, it is uh, going to be interesting, right? I mean aerospace is so broad. Um, uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see what the position is because uh, you know it's in the high of the uh, eye of the beholder whether something uh, is a threat. Uh, or is, should be considered uh, sensitive or not, especially since uh, the Chinese r- really do take enormous advantage of, you know, commercial te- technology for, um, for military uh, advancement. Sash, I want to uh, go to you because I think it's uh, Im- important to get your sense on this, right? Macron and Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the European Commission president, visited China. They did so together. They took starkly, they had starkly different messages Uh, Macron's subsequent statement was that it's necessary for France and, indeed, Europe to reduce dependency uh, on the United States. Um, There, many in Washington and, indeed, on the other, uh, on your side of the Atlantic, think that that handed both Xi and Putin victories, uh, in that both have been making this point, reduce dependence on the United States, reduce. uh, Macron went one step further and said we have to reduce uh, dependency on the dollar. We can't get caught in the middle uh, and become uh, vassals, I believe was, uh, was a phrase uh, he used. That has folks uh, in Washington a little concerned that as usual, Europe expects Washington uh, and the United States to charge to uh, Europe's rescue uh, to come in there in the face of Russian uh, aggression. The United States, I think it's almost $100 billion now uh, committed to helping uh, Ukraine. Um, while at the same time, Europe can take a vow of neutrality against Chinese aggression in the Pacific, right? It's a very discordant message and indeed feeds into fears uh, when you talk to people on the eastern uh, side of the alliance uh, and the union, this sort of skepticism of, of Paris and, and Berlin. Talk to us about decoupling in general, but then Macron's statement in that context, um, because it's troubling to some Uh, I think, whether they're sitting on this side of the Atlantic or your side of the Atlantic, or even in Asia, where France has been doing a terrific job trying to posture itself as a Pacific nation. It is a Pacific nation, but then has people, you know, on the other side of the world scratching their heads uh, after this. Yeah, look, there's there's
2: about an hour's worth of answer I can give to that question. I'm going to just try to isolate a couple of the points from it. Um, uh, I mean, first of all, if anything will have persuaded the Australians that they were right to, um, uh, you know, join AUKUS and to ditch French submarines, Macron's comments um, uh, at the end of last week and over the weekend will have confirmed it, because they, it, his comments about uh, neutrality in the Indo-Pacific and the you know disputed uh, status of Taiwan and so forth, I think will have been heard very clearly in Australia as we're not going to come and support you if it doesn't suit us in the event of a, um, uh, you know, a, a Pacific South China Sea uh, war. So, you know, I think the Australians did the you will know, we'll clearly think they did the right thing with AUKUS. And, you know, I think that's the correct reading of Macron's really very, mis- oh, very, uh, yeah, misguided statements. I think he he went out of his way to count out of China and managed to upset an, an immense number of other uh, nations, you know, all, all around the situation. Um, I do think there you know, there, there was clearly a problem of optics of Macron and Ursula von der Leyen going, going to China and what was referred to as a joint visit. Um, I almost feel sorry for Ursula von der Leyen because she goes along there with Macron and pretty much gets excluded from all the state visit bits. Um, and the reason is, of course, because she stated very clearly that she was going to talk about um, Europe's concerns to, uh, to China with regard to Ukraine, with regard to uh, technology, with regard to um, uh, trade and so forth and so the Chinese said well if you've been if you're coming with with negative vibes like that we don't need you know she doesn't need to see you very much whereas Macron you know turned up mob-handed with a complete um, posse businessman uh, clearly wanting to trade and lo and behold he got the full state visit treatment um, but uh, you know to have Macron and um, Ursula von der Leyen you know say we're going on the same visit when clearly they were not. And I think it's very unusual to have two heads of state or heads of state equivalent um, going on the same visit uh, like that, but uh, it, it didn't work in this case. And I think that Macron's willing or wish to um, have an independent foreign policy, to have an independent trade policy to, and so forth, uh, has caused him, rather than of so triangulating basically to become slightly more isolated. I mean, I, I would request that you, um, you know, I don't refer to, Amer- to Americans when I'm talking about Brazil and you refer to Europeans when you talk about France. Um, there are, there's a wide range of uh, views in Europe and just at the moment, I think France is to one extreme uh, and a, a, an extreme that is probably shared much more closely with Hungary than anybody else. Germany is clearly hugely Focused, still focused on trade and even some Frenchmen that I've, I've spoken to see this as being one of the weaknesses of German foreign policy that uh, it, it softens how Germany thinks about the whole Ukraine issue um, but that's not a view that shared as far as I could see anywhere in Scandinavia anywhere else in, in Eastern Europe and in a number of other countries in, in Western Europe as well so you know the, The problem of Europe is that it doesn't have a united view. On the other hand, I think that's probably rather a good thing at the moment, because if the united view was, as arguably French foreign policy has been for four or five decades, that France should be leading the EU, then I think that would create a much bigger problem for US relationships with Europe and for Europe's position in terms of uh, some some form of diplomatic leadership. But as it is, I think think Macron's come back from uh, China less trusted in in other countries in Europe, significantly less trusted in other countries in Europe. I don't think many people will, will think his his state visit helped very much. Um, and, you know, you know, the Airbus order wasn't quite clearly um, a final assembly line. Yeah, if you do, you know, Airbus have got a lot of final assembly lines. Interestingly, they made very clear that this is all part of their ramp uh, target to get to, uh, to 75 A320s a month by... Sometime in the future, uh, it's in that respect is nothing new, and I I seem to remember Airbus was talking about this back at their Capital's Market Day last September. So I'm afraid it slightly went over my head.
0: What are the defense cooperation, the potential commercial ramifications of this, or is it too early uh, to tell if everybody wants to kind of go around the horn on that? Right at a time but, when the United States is really getting sensitized to the China threat, and something that the Chinese are. Actively fueling uh, by their intimidation. I mean, the you know the last couple of days have been very tough. If you live in Taiwan, uh, for example, with incursions in your airspace, uh, ships doing you know uh, uh, Chinese uh, ships uh, off your coast, and indeed the threat to pull over and inspect Taiwanese uh, vessels uh, at will. Right? The Chinese making it clear that the Taiwanese flag doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, ultimately, uh, right, because this is an assertion of their sovereignty over it. Are there any market implications to this, or is this more, as you said, France being France, Macron being Macron, as opposed to listening to the nuances of the message, because the people I'm talking to are alarmed at the nuance of the message. They make clear this was not the right time to be delivering this message, and it will have repercussions. Will it?
2: Well, I don't think it'll have repercussions until the, um, until the US decides to go hardball on exports of civil aviation technology to China. Um, you know, as soon as the US says, the C- C- you know, COMAC, AVIC, the C919 program, the CR929, if anybody believes it's still in the ARJ21, are now prohibited organizations, prohibited beings. You can't export technology there. You can't transfer it even through a, um, a joint venture in China. At that stage, that will make uh, Europe's position very, very uncomfortable and deep. Now, I don't see the transfer of technology for the C nine one nine as being in the same league as Airbus's final assembly lines in Tianjin. Final assembly lines: you take various tubes, you take some, you know, big flat planks, you bolt them together, and put some engines underneath. It's it's actually it's high touch or low technology stuff. Having a uh, uh, a cockpit systems integration. Joint venture with um, Comac, having uh, aircraft, uh, you know, computing systems, uh, joint ventures with China, even actually co-manufacturing um, uh, landing gear, hydraulics, and so forth. That is dual-use technology that can and will be used in Chinese warplanes. And I think you know that needs to be stopped if we, and I'm using that in the broader sense of the West, U.S., Europe, uh, are serious about um, uh, relationships with. Uh, China, and that's a move that the US can make. But as soon as as long as C nine one nine program goes ahead with prodigious amounts of Western technology, and, and Richard had an excellent op-ed about this um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. As long as that goes ahead, I really don't think you should expect um, uh, you know the other company to stop selling civil aircraft in China. It's you know every I mean Boeing would love to sell civil aircraft in China for as long as it's allowed to. It's that the Chinese don't want to buy them.
0: Richard uh your your take on this uh and then uh ron if you want to weigh in on the broader sort of trade sentiment and where where we're heading go ahead
3: yeah you know i i agree there's not going to be a whole lot of trade impact from this announcement you know uh, first of all the numbers were tiny just a reconfirmation of stuff and you know Boeing has bigger problems with a single aisle product lineup um that aren't related (laughs) to I mean, they are related to China, but they're not related to this move. The Chinese are trending in the direction of Europe, um, opening a second line. Not sure it means very much. Certainly from a technology transfer standpoint, as Sash says, it's uh, absolutely nothing. of anything, it kind of actually cements their reliance on Western aircraft and gives Chinese the Chinese carriers a bit of top cover for ordering Airbuses and, and perhaps even Boeings one day. Um, but historically, production lines, and God knows Embraer did it, McDonnell Douglas did it, um, and Airbus has been doing it for years, have had absolutely no impact upon the development of China's aircraft industry. Historically, they also, the idea of having a, a production line in country actually had no impact upon market share either. Douglas was the most aggressive about putting a line in country, and, and in fact did so twice, um, and yet it suffered far and away the, the worst of the big three market share back in the 80s and 90s, Chinese carriers just did what they wanted. Um, and the only unfortunate aspect of this, which I, which I think is, uh, is something Sash touched upon, is of course uh, the feeling that the French were not exactly uh, being, the French government was not exactly being incredibly loyal to the Western alliance here in terms of its stance on China and certainly its stance on on Russia and everything like that. But commercially, i just don't see any significant impact. There are other reasons that Boeing should be worried about its China market share, but nothing about this visit really kind of reinforces that concern. Uh,
0: thanks. Ron, just sort of the broader uh, sentiment uh, and on um, you know, decoupling and, and how the street uh, is, is looking at this uh, at this point, right? I mean I think that people are pretty clear what's at stake. On the other hand, the companies themselves, uh, right. I mean, it was echoed uh, in the conference earlier uh, this year uh, that we worked together on. Right. The, you know, some of the people who were raising concerns about China were also those people who said, I've got a lot of money invested in China and I'm keeping my money there because I make good returns. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, this, these are about businesses and businesses are going to do what's allowed to, you know, to abide by their fiduciary responsibility and make money for their clients.
1: I I think you have to think about it in one of a a couple different ways broadly. Uh, And and I think this is how the investment community has thought about it actually for a long time. Um, The Chinese market for China, Chinese, uh, China as a offshore manufacturing low-cost site, Um, And it's two different things. So if you're investing in China for the Chinese market in Chinese companies, or maybe even U.S. companies into the Chinese market, that's a little bit of a different play than investing in China for offshoring. Because what we've seen on the offshoring side is it's it's changing, right? I mean, just this past weekend, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal highlighting how we're seeing more uh, industrial facilities building plants in the U.S., I think the title of the article was something like the U.S. is in the plant building business, again, referring to building plants onshore. And then you're seeing companies move their offshoring to other low-cost places that are viewed potentially as more friendly to do business with than than China. That's, That's one thing. And that's definitely changing, right? You're hearing that on company conference calls, so on and so forth, that they are changing their offshoring strategies um to either onshore what i highlighted but then the other card is the chinese market and there's ways to invest in china that are you know specific to china for the chinese market and i think there's still some investor interest in that but i would say broadly and this was probably precipitated by the pandemic there is more caution on investing in china today
0: than there was call it in 2018. that's interesting uh, very interesting indeed. Um, very quick uh, reminder to our audience to check out our other weekly podcast, Cavas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with our very own, uh, J.J. Uh, Gertler. Um, Barring any uh, additional China points, I want to shift gears uh, a little bit. Um, Sash, kind of get your take on the Pentagon uh, leak, um, because I know that uh, in your past, you've uh, done a little bit of war planning. Um, what does this mean? Um how serious a breach is it, right? I mean, there are a whole bunch, uh, The Justice Department is conducting an investigation, obviously very sensitive uh, information on stocks, supplies, the condition of Ukraine's military, the condition of Russia's military. Uh, it indicates that the United States uh, has um, uh, penetrated the Russian military, or, or at least has uh, an ability to almost have real-time insights into what the Russians uh, are doing. Um, this leak could have been from somebody who wants to help the Russians. Uh, clearly, the Chinese could have done it to help the Russians. This could have been a cyber operation, or it could have been somebody disgruntled who doesn't want to help the Ukrainians, or somebody who wants the uh, help to help the Ukrainians by underscoring the direness of the situation. From from your standpoint, has this changed anything as Ukraine starts to conscript more people? We, they obviously need airplanes, right? They they had a welcome infusion of uh of uh jets uh albeit old uh aircraft bringing up the end strength right it was 120 for the ukraine air force uh now it's it was down to 60 now it's back up to 85 aircraft anyway walk us through does this change anything as the uh as kiev prepares for an offensive
2: i don't think it changes
0: very much but it should make
2: almost everybody feel a little bit more paranoid um i genuinely have no idea whether the information that we are getting is uh, disinformation, deception, genuine leaks, and how accurate all of it is. I think we should assume that, that some of it is very, very accurate indeed. Some of the stuff that has been leaked should not have been beyond the uh, written capabilities of the various Russian intelligence agencies to deduce themselves. Um, there are always the issues with intelligence agencies when faced with a huge amount of information like this, how much do they believe and how much do they pass on up and what decisions? Though they come to from it. So actually, I don't think it is that consequential, but I think it it, probably, everybody trusts each other a little bit less. Uh, And if you're, you know, if we assume that this is a leak from from the US, for for whatever reasons, if I'm Russian, I still worry that it's it's disinformation. Uh, I still worry that it is, uh, that however accurate some of the stuff is, and you always have to have accurate information in a deception plan, because otherwise, no deception plan is credible. But the question is, you know, what, what can the Russians do about it? Um, you know, it, it's not very helpful. But there again, the Ukrainians themselves have been saying for about six months, we're going to do a big uh, spring offensive. Um, and you know, very senior Ukrainian officials have said on the record where the spring offensive might be. I don't happen to believe any of that. I think that that is classic uh disinformation classic deception plan good for them i think they do that sort of thing very very well it's possible either by accident or because it's a double deception that that in fact some of the places that they have talked about launching a counter are actually places they do it um, you know we're, we're seeing some fairly high grade uh uh, dis, uh disinformation and deception going going on here overall broader issues or uh, actually you know force structures themselves I don't believe for one second that the number of military aircraft that the Ukrainians have will make any difference at all to the success or failure. And I think it is very finely balanced of the spring offensive. 80 aircraft, 100 aircraft, 60 aircraft makes no difference. They don't know. Neither side has air superiority. The air defences are too uh, formidable and neither side has the ability to, to conduct serious suppression of enemy air defence Um uh, operations to uh, degrade the other side's radars and air defense systems. So what we have is air, air defense systems that work, aircraft that generally sit on the ground or fly, fire standoff weapons from a long way away, and have no really no military effect. The Russian aircraft have a political effect because they have more of them, and uh, because we can see the effect that some of their longer range missiles are having. But actually, this is a this is a war where air power has already lost the uh, lost the momentum, and I can't see it. Getting that back. Even if the Ukrainians got 40 F 16s today, I'd be very surprised if they could achieve anything other than temporary and local air superiority in, in some areas. Uh, nothing more than that. And that isn't enough for the offensive. What is enough, or what is uh, required, is um, armor, artillery, all of the supporting arms, all of the supporting munitions, and, and this is the bit that people tend to miss, the training. And I don't think the majority of um, commentators on Ukraine have thought enough about what is required to train the Ukrainian army in high-level combined arms operations on with Western equipment and Western style, um, and uh, to get that training down to the lowest possible uh, levels of uh, the Ukrainian military. I think their staff officers seem to me to be incredibly high quality, and they have an immense amount of military experience, I I mean, ironically, rather more than almost any NATO uh, officer of of similar starred rank has, because they've been in in combat on and off now since 2014, and high-level combat, not this counterinsurgency stuff that we were wasting time, money and blood uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq doing. Um, But to get the training in terms of logistics, in terms of combat supply, in terms of coordination of artillery, air defence, combat engineering, uh, mechanized infantry, and armor all together. My experience of that over my um, uh, career as a reservist in the British Army is that that is astonishingly hard work. And generally in the British Army, you had about a third of the mechanized army that was at the highest levels of, of, of operational capability at any one time. Another third was building up to that, and another third was you know, coming off and going off and doing other. Other operations but to get to get let's say a couple of divisions of ukrainian forces up to a, up to a very high level such that they can punch through a an extraordinarily heavily defended russian front line with huge uh, depth in terms of field defenses that's a very very big uh, job to do i do worry i worry a lot actually whether the ukrainians have, have got sufficient material and sufficient training um, and you know how, you know what it will take for them to do that
0: uh, I should uh, point out to the audience that you're uh, also uh, have a reputation as a first class trainer and a first class uh, planner uh, whether uh, in or out of uh, uniform uh, and indeed something uh, that you did ably during uh, the entirety of the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars I would point out uh, so thank you very much uh, for, for all of that hard work but it, it comes, uh, from a depth of insight because you've you've done it uh, hands on. Let me let me let's just go quickly to our King's College. Uh, war Studies uh, graduate as well. Richard, I want to uh, get your take before we get in uh, to just a whole bunch of uh, items that we've got to get through uh, to get to the other side of this. Go go ahead, Richard.
3: Yeah, you know, I agree. There's not a lot that came out in the planning and it's impossible to tell in this world of mirrors and disinformation who really leaked it. The only thing that had me unsettled reading through all the stuff this weekend, you know, a lot of it was fascinating, but the Times ran a really interesting story about um, the uh, nature of the air war. And how air defenses were sort of a fascinating example of failed air superiority, only because, um, you know, basically Russia's one strategic bargaining chip is its air force. It didn't want to bang it up, so it was willing to take ground casualties to not risk aircraft. But the reason that whole thing happened is because the Ukrainians were copiously supplied with air defense munitions and missiles, and that was running well. And if that happened. Russia's air force could get more emboldened provide actual genuine oh my goodness combat support to troops and of course more strikes against civil targets and whatever else and that everyone was running low about uh, everyone is concerned about Ukraine running low on these munitions and missiles that's about to change hopefully with the arrival of more nasams more you know everything from 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 hawk to IR, irs t and whatever else but what happen fast enough and will they be able to make the transition from Russian era or Soviet era systems to Western ones, you know, from S-300s and books and whatever else to, to uh, Western systems? All of these are big question marks. And, and the way this it was a very well done uh, article, um, it, it, it sort of played it as, as fairly existential to the war effort. It was the only thing that ruffled my feathers when I looked at all these leaks and, and everything that came out of it.
0: Air power is critical. And if we gave them the capabilities they need in order to be able to be more effective, you would get out of uh, sort of the situation you're in now. We're not. Therefore, they don't have air superiority and we're not giving them necessarily all the tools they need to deny Russia its own, even though harm missiles are uh, uh, among the capabilities the Ukrainians have. Ron, do you want to weigh in on this really quick before we tick through uh, three items on our list? We have to talk about the uh, uh, Bell uh, retaining uh, Flora, the future long-range assault aircraft. We've got to talk about Virgin Orbital's bankruptcy and, and Leonardo DRS's uh, billion dollar uh, win. But do you, do you have anything you want to add to this classified documents or anything else before we move into lightning round? I, I really don't. Yeah, I agree with you know, you know, Richard and Sash on everything. So, yeah. Terrific. Uh, tune into the air power program because we're going to be discussing this uh, on uh, Thursday uh, in part. Um, Ron, uh, take us to uh, the next level, right? The Government Accountability Office denied Sikorsky and Boeing's protest, double protest of the Army's uh, award of the future long-range assault aircraft uh, to Bell. I mean, basically saying, I mean, effectively, the Army was right in making its technically disqualifying decision. Uh, obviously, uh, Sikorsky and Boeing don't see it that way, but to Bell, it's a vindication, but it's not the last step. There are other steps in this that could delay award by another uh, 60 uh, days or so. Uh, Lockheed uh, and Boeing could decide to go to court. Uh, any, any sense on the outcome and, and what's next?
1: Yeah, I guess the outcome wasn't all that surprising, really, right? I mean, just just from the simple fact that typically, not always, but typically these go to the original winner in the first place. Um, now, to your second point, you know, could they go to court? I wouldn't be surprised if they did to drag this out even even more. Um, ultimately, you know, what what does that do? It just costs Bell even more, right? So, um, so I guess, yeah, in a nutshell, I think that's it. I mean, I don't think it's quite over yet, but... You know given you know the the you know the tone and tenor of, of what was said in the gao report um, you know what what recourse from here ultimately uh, do Bell and uh, Sikorsky Lockheed have it doesn't seem like a heck of
0: a lot and it, it's it's interesting right so if you can cost your adversary 60 million dollars and it's already been under protest for a couple of months right it's it's sort of astonishing that this is okay but right? I mean, this has got to have cost, what, a $100 million already or, or so, ultimately? Yeah, yeah
1: I, I would imagine so. And, and and I don't think it's lost on the the Lockheed team that Bell is significantly smaller, right? So, right. you know, this is a deeper hit in Bell's wallet than it would be in, in either Boeing's or, or, or Lockheed's.
0: Um, uh, Richard, uh, any, any uh, sense on this uh, impact-wise? Um, you know, outcome wise. Uh, and and ultimately, right, Sikorsky and Boeing have both been getting orders as, we, as we've been discussing on this program.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, these sorts of things are very unusual to see overturned. I mean, the original ACX contract was one of the few I can remember. Um, so I, I think this was somewhat inevitable. The Obviously, what happens next is a plan B for Lockheed Martin and Sikorsky. Uh, That means doing their best to slow roll, if not kill the program, and uh, try to sell Blackhawks in return. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, they'll they'll certainly be able to keep the Blackhawk line going. It's, you know, as we've said many times, this is a Ferrari versus Ford F-150, and the F-150s are going to go for another half century. Uh, so I think the, the terms of the battle are gonna switch. Uh, you know, they might well file in court. I just don't think it'll do a whole heck of a lot of good aside from being part of slow rolling the, uh, the Flora effort. But um, you know, you're not going to see the Black Hawk line go away anytime soon
0: um as as a bell uh friend of mine uh pointed out you know vago how long ago was it that the blackhawk was selected to replace the huey and we're still making hueys right so <laughs> you know it's <laughs> kind of it's it was sort of a um uh uh and and look i mean it was also i think i mean and, and bell obviously sponsors this program but they really engineered their airplane well uh and i think that that's unfortunately uh at least from a sikorsky standpoint right is is what uh, appeared to be what the army was saying, right, Richard? I mean, have I got that right? That from a technical maturity standpoint, they had confidence in the V two hundred eighty design, and they had less confidence, which is which is something that we had all, ex- you know, expressed in a number of other people, even even among, um, um, you know, from the Lockheed side, would occasionally uh, express. Is that is that about right? Do you think? Yeah,
3: you know, it, it was a little higher towards the risk and reward quadrant. Um, you know, a bit more speed, a bit more range, and uh, a little more technical maturity too, compared to the uh, the compound coax. But you know, ultimately, as uh, as Ron and others have said many occasions, this was apples and oranges. You know, the the uh, the Sikorsky design was far more of a you know an assault helicopter. The V two eighty is more of a transport. But the army very definitely wants a transport for long-range precision fires in the Western Pacific right now, that's what they want. So yes, technology maturation is probably better on their side, uh, but ultimately it's more in keeping with what the army had in mind. Uh,
0: Speed and and range, uh, which is the chief of staff uh, and master aviator, uh, Jim McConville uh, would say uh, repeatedly. All right, really uh, quick, um, anybody who, who wants to address the Virgin Orbital bankruptcy and what it means? Clearly. You know, the the
1: bankruptcy was unfortunate, but it just highlights a couple things. One, in the current environment for startup companies to raise capital, it's more difficult than it was. Just call it maybe eighteen months ago. Um, you go back then; it can really at the height of the the, the SPAC boom, uh, there was a lot of liquidity in the market for for startup companies. It's just it's just not there today. It's harder for them. Um, two, it, it I think it means anybody investing in SPACs. Um, and back equities has to put on their fixed income pat and start looking at, at balance sheets and cash on balance sheets and how long that that cash can can last. Um, and, and then three, I think for the broader space sector, it probably doesn't mean a heck of a lot, right? Honestly, um, it's, there's you know there's um, still companies out there doing work. It it you know outside of what I just said, will it be harder for those companies to raise money? Yes. But that's a market thing. That's not a virgin orbit thing, right? I mean, so virgin orbit, I think, was just impacted by a broader market situation. It didn't cause anything, right? So for if you if you get what I'm trying to say, right? So if you are a small company, you want to raise capital, it's just harder out there. And that's not virgin orbit's fault. They were just they just felt um victim to that uh, in the end,
0: sadly. Right. Sash, why don't you take a bite at this uh, as well?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um I mean just to follow on, I I, I completely agree with Ron. Um companies in, in a, the emerging aerospace and emerging aerospace and defense technologies, whether that is um, uh, space or uh or, or or others, I think have become very seduced by the tech industry and by the uh, ease with which tech companies have perceived themselves to be able to refinance when they need to. Um, and when life gets tougher, that just isn't isn't the case. One of, the mo- one of the best research notes I ever read on a subject that I had no other interest in, it was actually written by um, a pharmaceuticals analyst uh, when I was at UBS many years ago. Uh, and the note was called uh, 80 pharmaceutical companies with less than 18 months of cash. And the thesis was that if you have a, uh, a company that is, um, uh, has, got a, you know, has raised funds has got fantastic technology, but on the current rate of cash burn, they're going to need to do something within the next 18 months. And actually, the thesis was, they're gonna need to do something within 12 months. That situation is going to create some, um, a, a, a very wide dispersion of likely outcomes. Some of those companies will refinance and do brilliantly. Others will go to the wall. But what you can be positive of is that almost none of them can keep on spending at that rate because at the end of eighteen months, it's all over. And I think one of, you know, um, uh, Virgin Orbit's problems was it was spending at a very, very high rate. And I think any company that has, you know, a big C-suite, let's be, let's, you know, just leave it at that, um, and is is trying to use its sort of corporate image as a means of telling us how how everything is great, rather than actually focusing on the very, very hard engineering required. To do stuff with a high level of failure inherent in almost every single uh, flight that you do, um, you know they're missing the point, and I think that you know they're much more likely to run out of cash. And this is why the EV salt sector is going to be so interesting in the next couple of years because there are plenty of companies there that know they need to refi
0: and um, may not be able to do it in time. Richard, do you want to weigh in briefly on that?
3: Well, you know, I mean that this is obviously one of those major trends that's going to hit the startup industry for some time. I, I'm sometimes wondered I sometimes wonder whether more will you know whether this this fall off in investment capital and, and cheap money is going to coincide with a uh, a rise in governments uh, stepping into this space. And funding aerospace startups is sort of a, you know, a form of industrial policy to make it look like they're proactive in cultivating new uh, skills and, and technologies rightly or wrongly. As, as uh, Ron often says, and I completely agree, governments do a terrible job of allocating capital. That's certainly something to think about. You're also seeing more and more sort of technology development funds by larger aerospace corporations take stakes in the startup aero companies and, uh, that's something to watch, although the amount of money isn't all that big, it, it might provide a lifeline for for some companies and, and presumably they'll do a better job of selecting winners, but not a perfect one either.
0: Ron, let me just uh, get your uh, quick take. We've got about 30 seconds left in the show. Leonardo uh, DRS, obviously one of our sponsors, but a billion dollar uh, award for uh, propulsion, uh, the electric propulsion for the Columbia class ballistic missile uh, submarine Magnitude and importance of the announcement?
1: Clearly, it's important, right? It's a big contract, but it shouldn't come as a surprise because they are the supplier of that on that program. So, if anything, it's just evidence of the program moving forward and moving along. So, you know, it's positive, but it's not that big a surprise.
0: You know, this is the kind of stuff that uh, DRS uh, was doing for a very long uh, period of time and obviously invested heavily uh, in the technologies. And uh, if everything goes as planned, Uh, Bill Lynn, the CEO of Leonardo DRS, will be joining us on the program uh, tomorrow when it will be our customary uh, look-ahead segment with uh, our uh, mutual friend Byron uh, Callen of Capital Alpha Partners as well. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, for joining us. Absolute treat. Uh, Hope you guys have a great week uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. And a very special thank you uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible each week. Everybody, thanks so very much.
1: It's great to be here, Vargo. Thanks.
0: Yeah, thank you very much indeed, as always, Vargo, and happy
2: Easter to everyone.
3: Yeah, great to be on, and uh, well, happy holidays for everybody. uh, Easter, Passover, Ramadan.